it's Chloe here. I can see from my recordings that the last time I attempted to do this was in August and that didn't even make it to air. So that says something about how long our lockdown hiatus has been on barely getting by. We're still on hiatus and we're still not quite sure when we're back in the studio. But nonetheless, the climate news keeps on coming. And this week, all eyes are on Glasgow for the 26th Conference of the Parties to the Paris Agreement. This is widely understood as the last best chance for concerted global action on climate. In August, the IPCC report found that even in its most ambitious scenario, which the world is failing to stick to, global warming would likely hit 1.5 degrees Celsius by about 2035. And on our current trajectory, we are likely to hit 1.5 degrees Celsius warming around 2030. When he was elected, Joe Biden promised to return the United States to global leadership on climate, that the US would do its part to avert the catastrophe and use its considerable global influence to push for global action. At the first international global event he hosted, the Climate Leaders Summit in April, the signs that Biden would fulfil that promise were good. Since then, all of Australia's major trading partners and allies have increased their climate commitments. But despite diplomatic pressure from the Biden administration and other allies, the Australian government has so far refused to make similar promises. Biden, meanwhile, is currently staring down a member of his own party, Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia, who is threatening to torpedo his whole climate agenda. How Biden's domestic political challenges and Australia's recalcitrance play out in the coming days and weeks beyond that will be critical for the outcome both of COP26 and the future of climate action. So what could history tell us? In Glasgow, the Morrison government will be hoping for a historical repeat that just like in Kyoto in 1997, the Australian government can undermine global negotiations and the final agreement and then rely on the United States Congress to do the rest. That at least is what Emma is arguing in her book, Our Exceptional Friend, Australia's Fatal Alliance with the United States. Emma also argues that the Morrison government's hope isn't misplaced because Australia's security alliance with the United States, which is 70 years old this year, prioritises military threat above all else, and therefore it's ill-suited to acting on a threat like climate change. That alliance, Emma argues, reinforces the worst instincts of Australian politics, reassuring the Australian government that any failure to act on its part won't result in any significant consequences for our most important security relationship. And I'm now waving to you in nuclear submarine. In this special episode, I'm now going to hand over to Emma to read the chapter Shared Climate from her book, Our Exceptional Friend. An Australian visiting Southern California for the first time might find themselves momentarily disoriented. Driving around somewhere like Santa Barbara reveals landscapes startlingly familiar, streets and fields broken up by stands of towering blue gums. In warm weather, the eucalypts fill the air with their unmistakable scent. At the right time of year, sidewalks are covered with feathery white stamens and spent gum nuts. In the fall, their streamers of bark rustle in the Santa Ana winds. In California, Australians, so accustomed to being from a place invaded by foreign species, suddenly and disconcertingly find that their country is the source of another invasion. Blue gums arrived in California sometime in the mid-1800s, 
brought in as a source of fast-growing timber, and also because they are beautiful and perfectly suited to the local climate and environment. They came at about the same time as the California gold rush, which overlapped with those in Australia. The long history of environmental and cultural exchange between our two countries is representative of the complexity and the depth of the connection we have, which goes far beyond the more recent history of diplomatic relations. We are brought together by history and by our landscapes, with their similar climates, contours, wealth, gum trees, and, more recently, by skies turned apocalyptic orange. In 2019 to 2020, the east coast of Australia and the west coast of the United States suffered some of the worst fire seasons in their histories. Images emerging from both places were almost indistinguishable. Leaving aside an injured koala or a smouldering Joshua tree, the orange and red-tinged footage taken half a world apart might have been from the same place. Blue gums and residents and houses endured the same inferno. In the northern summer and autumn on the west coast of the United States, Americans, accustomed to wearing masks to protect themselves from a pandemic, now needed them to breathe through some of the worst air quality in the world as they endured weeks of wildfire and smoke. By then, residents on the east coast of Australia had shifted in the opposite direction, from using masks to breathe through our own suffocating smoke haze to wearing them as virus protection. As one catastrophic fire season merged into another, our coastlines became nightmare mirror images. Between the United States and Australia, over 20 million hectares were burnt. In January 2020, New South Wales experienced its largest fires in recorded history. Smoke from Australia circumnavigated the globe, depositing orange-tinted ash on the snow-covered peaks of New Zealand. In the language of the United States, the Australian fire season burned through an area twice the size of Florida. 33 people died, along with more than a billion animals. In California, five of the six worst fires in the state's history occurred in 2020. The August complex fire was the largest the state had ever seen. 36 people died. Smoke drifted clear across the continent, reaching the Atlantic coast. The scale of the destruction was so unfathomable, so frightening, that existing vocabulary failed to convey it. In California, the August complex fire created its own new category of gigafire. In both countries, the word megafire tried but didn't quite succeed at capturing the scale of what was happening. And then there was the almost unpronounceable pyrocumulonimbus. The fires got so big they created their own weather. Smoke billowed into clouds, some of them turning into fire tornadoes. Those clouds rose up thousands of metres to heights that towered over passenger planes, sometimes creating their own lightning, which started new fires. On both continents, it felt like the beginning of the end of the world. Alongside their near-identical scenes of destruction, the fires of 2019 and 2020 shared one other thing in common. Climate change. There is absolutely no doubt that climate change made both fire seasons much, much worse. In the lead-up, both countries were suffering through record heat and drought. In August 2020, California's Death Valley experienced what was probably the hottest ever temperature recorded on Earth. 134 degrees Fahrenheit or 56.7 degrees Celsius. 
That August and September were the hottest months ever recorded in the United States. Australia, meanwhile, experienced its six hottest days ever in December 2019, a month that also saw the lowest average rainfall and the worst fire conditions on record. This extreme heat and extreme dry drastically worsened fire conditions in both places. Successive Australian and US governments, and their support of extractive capitalism and the fossil fuel industry, helped to create and reinforce this catastrophe. Our two countries, which share such a deep environmental and historic connection, are partly responsible for these ever-worsening, terrifying conditions. And they keep on making it worse, together. Our connected story is also one of shared climate denial and a shared refusal to act, even a shared history of climate sabotage. President Biden has promised a renewal of American leadership on climate change. His administration has said it will pressure the Australian government to carry its weight, insisting, correctly, that investing paltry amounts of money in cleaning up fossil fuels and pretending that technology will save us isn't anywhere near enough. But any pressure will almost certainly be of the diplomatic variety, and most likely isolated to specific climate talks alone. The alliance is so overwhelmingly focused on war and capital that such pressure is unlikely to have any effect on Australian climate policies, which are still treated by both major parties as less important than questions of hard power politics and the endurance of the special relationship. The Morrison government can continue to rely on Australia's relationship with America to reinforce the worst elements in our national politics, things like complete disregard for climate and the environment, inequality and racism. And unless the Biden administration does its part in properly addressing the underlying causes of these systemic global problems and the United States' own history of failing to act, the politics won't change. But the climate will. The insistence that climate change isn't real or that it doesn't really matter has been around since scientific knowledge of climate change emerged into the mainstream in the 1980s. But that denialism wasn't openly weaponised and spread by a sympathetic media and a political class committed to an extractive, fossil-fuel-based economic model until the 1990s. In fact, in the 1980s, US President Ronald Reagan and Australian Prime Minister Bob Hawke both accepted the scientific consensus. Reagan even actively supported the 1987 Montreal Protocol, the agreement that banned the use and production of harmful chlorofluorocarbons, better known as CFCs, and other chemicals that were causing the hole in the ozone layer. The Montreal Protocol is arguably one of the world's few successful environmental agreements, in that it has actually achieved what it said it would. Today, the hole in the ozone layer is shrinking. Montreal is a marker of what the world can achieve when the United States supports environmental action, even in a limited capacity. And while Reagan was hardly the kind of president who would have acted to constrain the interests of the American fossil fuel industry, in Australia, Prime Minister Hawke knew climate change was real and thought Australia should act. In 1990, he announced a 20% emissions reduction target. These leaders weren't talking about the kind of deep systemic reform that we need in order to prevent catastrophic climate change, but nor were they pretending it wasn't a problem or claiming that calls for action on climate disguised a nefarious plot for authoritarian global government and economic destruction. But as soon as it was clear that action on climate change might involve dramatic economic and political reform, fossil fuel interests in both countries leapt very quietly into gear to protect their profits. 
Companies like ExxonMobil had in fact known about the science of climate change since the 1970s and had been actively working to discredit it for years. ExxonMobil is the same company which, in 1989, was responsible for the worst oil spill in American history. By the time the science went mainstream and started generating momentum for global action, American and international fossil fuel interests had already undermined it. In the early 1990s, though, public hope for global climate action was really high. Those hopes coalesced around the 1992 Earth Summit in Rio, at which the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change or the UNFCCC, was signed. This same agreement has underpinned global climate agreements ever since. Both President George H.W. Bush and Prime Minister Paul Keating signed the UNFCCC. Bush, who liked to call himself the environmental president, said all the right things, that we come to Rio with an action plan on climate change, and that he was there to demonstrate our continuing commitment to leadership and to international cooperation on the environment. Bush was only ever a reluctant environmentalist. And Keating didn't even bother to actually attend the summit. In the end, the global agreements that came out of the Rio summit had been watered down so much as to be meaningless. There was no real commitment to action at a critical moment in time when there was a real chance of reducing emissions and keeping global warming to a minimum. The 1990s were a crucial decade on that front, 1992 set the world on a path of climate inaction that we have yet to truly deviate from. Led by the United States, the rest of the world was forced into a pattern of inadequacy. And five years after Rio, the same thing happened again, and the United States and Australia's climate partnership calcified into its most destructive form. In 1997, parties to the UNFCCC reconvened in Kyoto, Japan, where they negotiated the first international agreement to actually lay out cuts to global greenhouse gas emissions. It was a huge step forward. The Kyoto Protocol committed industrialised nations to specific, legally binding reductions in emissions of six greenhouse gases. Under the administration of Democratic President Bill Clinton, the United States negotiating team agreed to cut its emissions to 7% below 1990 levels, behind only the European Union, which committed to an 8% cut. Kyoto was hailed as a breakthrough that could set the world on a new, low-carbon path. Clinton called it a truly historic agreement to take unprecedented steps to address the global problem of climate change. His administration was given much of the credit for the agreement. Vice President Al Gore had been critical in breaking a negotiating stalemate. Without Gore, the agreement may never have made it as far as it did. The young Democratic senator from Tennessee had made his name as an environmentalist early in his political career. In 1992, his book, Earth in the Balance, became the first book by a sitting senator to make the New York Times bestseller list since John F. Kennedy's Profiles in Courage. Gore had gone to the Rio Earth Summit in the same year, and was so disappointed with the United States' role there that he accepted the nomination to be Clinton's vice presidential candidate, in part to try to redress those wrongs. He didn't, though, and at least part of the blame for that lies with the Australian government. At Kyoto, Australia, now under the prime ministership of John Howard, was uncharacteristically at odds with the United States. The Conservative government was uninterested in protecting the environment, seeing that as antithetical to the overwhelming priority of economic growth and capital accumulation. 
It was also confident that the alliance, centred as it was around ANZUS and security concerns, wouldn't suffer as a result. So in Kyoto, Howard's negotiating team behaved appallingly. The positions it took were arrogant, recalcitrant and morally bankrupt. The Australian team demanded, and was granted, ridiculous concessions. Under the final agreement, Australia was allowed to increase its national emissions by 8% above 1990 levels. Almost every other nation had committed to a reduction in emissions. And because the rate of land clearing had dropped in Australia that year, the so-called Australia Clause in the final agreement meant that our national baseline, the point from which reduction requirements are calculated, was even lower than it should have been, making it easier to meet targets that were close to meaningless in the first place. The Australian team extracted this concession by threatening to torpedo the whole agreement at the final hour. The Howard government successfully used the liberalism of the 1990s, which so highly valued unity and bipartisanship, and got so easily bogged down in technical detail, against itself. The Australian government had taken part in the negotiations at Kyoto not as a gesture of international good faith. More likely, it had sought to undermine the agreement and its purpose from the inside. The fact that Australia could significantly increase emissions and still meet its Kyoto targets is still used by Conservative governments to pretend that Australia is doing our bit on climate change. In the late 1990s, these ridiculous concessions still weren't enough for the Howard government. The Prime Minister refused to ratify the Kyoto Protocol, insisting that implementing it would not be in Australia's national interests. Even though we would, he said, meet our agreed targets anyway. Acting uncannily like the United States, Australia had demanded an international agreement that suited its own interests at the expense of the world's, and then refused to sign it. We had learned from the best. Then, our shining example outdid itself. In a devastating setback for the climate and for life as we know it, the United States Congress followed Australia's lead and refused to ratify Kyoto. Even before the negotiations were finalised, the Republican-controlled Senate passed a resolution stating that it would refuse to ratify any agreement that committed the United States to emissions reductions unless developing countries were subject to the same requirements, and even then, it would only consent if the agreement did not result in serious harm to the US economy. Much to the despair and international embarrassment of Gore and Clinton, the President had little choice but to announce that he would not be submitting the treaty to the Senate for consent, which meant any prospect of ratification was delayed indefinitely. It was dead in the water. The Kyoto Protocol never had any effect on the United States. The Howard government was, of course, very pleased with this outcome, and especially pleased to see the continuation of Australian and American ideological unity, even if, this time, it had circumnavigated the presidency. On climate, Australian national interests were perfectly ideologically aligned with the values and interests of American capital. The final nail in the Kyoto Protocol was hammered in by President George W. Bush in April 2001, when he announced that the United States no longer regarded itself bound by the agreement at all. Kyoto, Bush said, would have required the United States to make deep and immediate cuts in our economy to meet an arbitrary target. He continued, As the President of the United States, charged with safeguarding the welfare of the American people and American workers, I will not commit our nation to an unsound international treaty that will throw millions of our citizens out of work. 
It would be another decade and a half after the damage wrought by the United States and Australia before the world saw any kind of renewed action on climate change. It's all too easy to point the finger at conservatives and economic interests on both sides of the Pacific for this collective failure to act on climate. But conservatives weren't in power in the United States in the 1990s. Liberals were. And that 1990s-style political and economic liberalism in Australia and the United States shares at least some of the blame for this dire state of affairs. Unity with and acquiescence to the United States across both major political parties is a big part of the problem of global inaction on climate. Those rare Australian governments that have made acting on climate change part of their agenda share much of their politics and their significant failures with American liberals like Clinton and Gore, the effective architects of the first real global effort to act on climate. This unity, too, has damaged and held back effective and radical international climate action, albeit in more subtle ways. The 1990s saw the triumph of liberalism and the idea that social and political problems could be addressed by smart Ivy Leaguers using ever-improving technology. As a self-styled New Democrat, Bill Clinton was the embodiment of this politics. He was the first post-Cold War president, the first of the baby boomers to hold the office, and the first not to have served in a war. Clinton was generally progressive on social issues, but desperate to outmaneuver American conservatives on the issues that had won them power for so long, especially fiscal conservatism and being hard on crime and social welfare. Clinton's politics, like Tony Blair's across the Atlantic, and not unlike those of Bob Hawke and Paul Keating, assumed that there was a middle ground a sensible centre that could appeal to an inherent rationality in the American people. Finding that sensible centre would lead to mutually agreeable solutions to shared problems, including climate change. And the answer to those problems lay in that appeal to rationality and in market mechanisms. The system itself, the one that America had built, was not the problem but the solution. This liberal version of American exceptionalism is in the end, no less toxic to the world than its more brazen conservative manifestation. The liberalism of Clinton and Gore, and Gore's close friend John Kerry, now climate envoy in the Biden administration, has remained largely unchanged in the decades since. It is still focused on market solutions and the apparently obvious rationality of the need to act on climate. Trapped in a post-Cold War vision of the benevolence and superiority of the American model, These men will tell inspiring stories of how climate deniers in the Republican Party have done the maths and come to realise that switching to renewables just makes sense. This brand of liberal environmentalism assumes that the structures of the American and international economy are sound and that renewable energy can simply be substituted for fossil fuels. Problem solved. Growth can still happen exactly as it has and power structures can remain mostly unchanged. The energy barons will just drive Teslas instead of Range Rovers. This is the reason why the Clinton administration is remembered not for its environmental achievements so much as its catastrophic failures on that score. Theirs is a politics that focuses on the agency of the individual rather than the underlying structures of political and economic systems. It holds that individuals are the main agents of reform. Climate change, in this framing, is above politics and should be bipartisan. We can all have our straws. We should just agree that they mustn't be made of single-use plastic. 
To twist the words of Ronald Reagan, governments and markets aren't the problem. It is the way individuals run their lives and the choices they make as consumers. It's a bit like Facebook feminism, which argues that all we need to do to solve gender inequality is have more women on corporate boards. In this way, the debate about climate change, the way it is understood in mainstream politics, is not unlike the debate about racism in Australia, where racists are framed as existing outside of normal, everyday life. Racists are bad individuals, not regular people. As with the climate debate, where the bad guys are cartoonish extractors of fossil fuels, this approach to racism sees it not in terms of a systemic issue, but individual behaviour. It pretends it's all above politics, when politics is in fact central. In Gore and Clinton and Kerry's world, bad fossil fuel operators can either be convinced by rational argument to change their behaviour, or they will be overtaken by inevitable market forces anyway. The political and economic system that allowed those fuel barons to accumulate obscene wealth and political power through unfettered environmental destruction can just be tweaked to get rid of them, but it doesn't need to be replaced. This framing of the debate has affected Australia deeply. It has allowed conservative governments and interests here to ride out any American efforts to address climate change. They can nod and smile and participate in talks, understanding that those American ideas about market solutions merely reinforce the status quo. Australian governments can participate at a minimal level, they can even sabotage agreements, and American liberals will still let them participate with very little consequence. American liberalism's focus on the technocratic also allows Australian governments and industry to hedge. Because market mechanisms and renewable energy transitions are complicated and descend so quickly into technobabble, Australian governments can hide behind things like Kyoto Protocol carryover credits. They can pretend we're taking acceptable steps to meet our international obligations even when that means doing absolutely nothing at all, or even making the problem worse. Thus, the technical argument serves to obscure, once again, the relatively simple moral questions at play, allowing bad faith actors to perpetuate a cycle of vastly inadequate global climate agreements. But this doesn't just affect one side of politics in Australia. The whole country's orientation to American power means that much of the local opposition to conservative climate politics is also blinded and captured by American liberal approaches to climate change. Australia's nationally specific climate politics has its own origins and motivations, of course. Much of it is tied up in the nature of our economy, which is based on digging stuff out of the ground and selling it overseas, and the shape of our media. But on the mainstream Australian left and for climate-sympathetic liberals, much of what is considered possible when it comes to climate is imported directly from its political equivalent in the United States. So we hear talk about market-based solutions, about cap-and-trade and emissions trading schemes, and we don't get to hear much about alternatives. Despite the obvious failure of that market-oriented approach to mitigate global climate change, it still reigns supreme. The focus on complicated market mechanisms and technological fixes gave us Kevin Rudd's failed emissions trading scheme, brought undone by the interests of big mining and the American economic model. Such policies remain fatally vulnerable to simplistic, Reagan-like narratives about great big new taxes that will hurt jobs in the economy. 
That idolisation of American capital as the solution sees Australian politics descend into fights about who gets to host Elon Musk's renewable batteries in a race to import further American capital and inequality, rather than a nuanced conversation about the responsibility of government to support genuine reform, leading to a policy approach that doesn't centre the interests and values of private American capital. Australian politics is so stuck in this time warp that it misses developments happening elsewhere, including outside the main structures of power in the United States. The Sunrise Movement, for example, has helped to sweep progressive young politicians into the US Congress. They have forced radical environmental justice programs like the Green New Deal into the mainstream, and they are reshaping the climate and environmental platforms of the Democratic Party and now the presidency. That has not yet resulted in a radical rethink of the exercise of American power in the world, but such an outcome isn't impossible. If it does happen, the Australian political establishment won't be equipped to respond or even take it seriously. It was taken almost entirely by surprise when Tory Prime Minister Boris Johnson announced a radical climate policy in the UK, as did the European Union, and then Korea, and then China. All of Australia's major trading partners have now committed to net zero emissions by 2050 or 2060 and are in the process of establishing the pathways to get there. These easily foreseeable international developments are already leaving Australia behind economically, politically and morally. Still, the Australian political landscape shows no signs of a voluntary shift in response. Decades of experience with the American alliance has taught Australian governments to use climate denialism in America, along with mundane American liberal exceptionalism, as a shield and a reinforcement for their own inaction. As Joe Biden was being inaugurated, the Sydney Morning Herald was concerned. While Biden will continue with much of the Trump administration's agenda for the region, Australia is alive to the risk that the US could, down the track, trade off its geostrategic goals for other priorities, such as more ambitious action on climate change. That the mainstream media and politics in Australia still regard climate action as a trade-off for things like security reflects both the appalling state of debate here and just how much it has been influenced by America. Today, the Australian government remains confident that American capital interests will prevail and that an adherence to old American liberalism will mean the continued absence of effective American political or diplomatic opposition to its climate recalcitrance. Some of them remain confident in the longevity and strength of Trumpian politics. Despite his loss, they know that he, or someone like him, might well be back in power soon enough. The long threads connecting Australian and American media, climate denial and white supremacy all work together to reinforce each other. American conservatives and far-right operatives see this connection and the way it can reinforce their own domestic politics. Toxic climate denialism shows just to what extent the US-Australian alliance serves to encourage, strengthen and perpetuate environmental, racial and economic injustice. The catastrophic 2019-2020 fire season was a particularly horrendous example. On the 8th of January 2020, the President's son, Donald Trump Jr., tweeted an article from News Corp's national masthead, The Australian, and commented, More than 180 alleged arsonists have been arrested since the start of the bushfire season, with 29 blazes deliberately lit in the Shoalhaven region of southeast New South Wales in just three months. That was, he wrote, truly disgusting. God bless Australia. 
None of it was true, of course, not that it mattered. The conspiracy theories about arsonists were already flowing, and they had made it first to the Australian mainstream media and politics, and then across the Pacific. <laughs> Sorry, Bean. <laughs> in the United States and in Australia, efforts to blame arsonists for the infernos served multiple purposes. They served denialism by arguing that the fires were caused by errant individuals rather than climate change. They served the far right, which has its own form of climate denialism tied into white supremacy and which seeks to blame the left for the catastrophes. In the United States, that takes the form of blaming Antifa, and in Australia, it's Greenies, who, depending on your take, had somehow prevented backburning and allowed the fuel load to accumulate or lit the fires themselves in an effort to scare people into accepting climate action. In Oregon, the conspiracy was weaponized by white supremacist militiamen with loaded guns who set up makeshift roadblocks to stop people evacuating. These conspiracy theories were spread and boosted by that other agent of American capital, Facebook. This positive reinforcement loop between our two countries is part of the reason why we are together the best and most consistent climate deniers in the world. Survey after survey shows that Australia and the United States have the highest levels of climate denial anywhere. A June 2020 survey, for example, taken after that terrible bushfire season, found that Australia had the third highest percentage of climate deniers in the world, accounting for 8% of the population. In the United States, it was 12%. Sweden came in second at 9%. The researchers conducting the survey found a strong connection between climate denial and media consumption. In both countries, those who consumed conservative media, in Australia, AM radio stations owned by Channel 9 or News Corp Sky News, and in the United States, Murdoch's Fox News, were much more likely to dismiss climate change as unimportant. The dominance of News Corp in Australia and Fox News in the US, with the latter essentially serving as Trump's state television network, nourishes a climate denialism that spans the warming Pacific Ocean. And while Trump may have left office, News Corp has not. Despite this shared network of conspiracy, far-right activism, and a media that undermines democracy in both countries, the fact remains that a clear majority of Australians, 61%, accept the reality of human-induced climate change. An even clearer majority, 64%, want Australia to commit to net zero by 2050, as all our major trading partners have already done. In the United States, 59% of the population sees climate change as a serious threat. These figures don't necessarily translate directly into a desire for action, and we should be careful about reading too much into political polling. But the disconnect between people and politics in both countries is apparent. It has been created, fed and exploited by conservative media and capital interests. In Australia, those political and economic interests are the reason why there has not been comprehensive, decisive action to combat climate change. It has been too easy for some experts in the field to put this down to the so-called Trump effect and to argue that Trump's climate denialism in particular stymied global action by giving licence to other deniers like Australia. But the reality, as we have seen, is that that licence has been provided for decades and has been so successful because it is backed by the might of American capital. The Biden administration's insistence on assuming the mantle of global leadership on climate exposes the hypocrisy at the heart of American exceptionalism. As historian Adam Tooze has argued, 
Instead of leading from behind, the United States has returned to a rhetoric of soaring ambition that governments like ours can just ignore because they know it will fail. Biden's own liberalism, his instinct to reach for the centre and for compromise, has reassured the Morrison government that Australia can hide behind the farcical commitments it has already made. So despite a media narrative about increased American pressure, both the Prime Minister and his Minister for Emissions Reduction, Angus Taylor, have said that the Australian and the United States feel the same way about practical and technological solutions. For the moment, at least, the cycle continues. Emma's book is out now, and you can find further reading on this topic and others in the show notes. We hope to be back in the studio early next year. Thank you for listening.